Hello, and welcome back to our discussion of The Brothers Karamazov by Fyodor Dostoevsky. Today we begin the end. We are finally at the big climactic trial scene that we've all been waiting for. Dmitri and Ivan's fates hang in the balance along with every person who is connected to them. The novel is finally reaching its end. And it's quite an end, honestly. Like, Dostoevsky has brought us through a lot of different genres and a lot of different perspectives. He's looked deeply at multiple different characters. And in many ways, this is a really strange choice for his conclusion to the novel. Um, we do, in fact, get to see many of our characters. Like, we get to see all of our characters' sort of questions and conflicts come to a head as witnesses in this big, giant trial. Um, but perhaps most weirdly of all is the fact that the trial concludes not with, you know, big character confessions or, you know, even big ideas so much as we get these two long speeches, first from the prosecutor and then from the defense attorney, and they're just weird and out of place and kind of difficult to parse, especially in the context of the novel so far. Like, much as Ippolit Kirillovich at least was a character, minor though he seemed, um, it is really strange for him to suddenly get this long 30-page speech, which is immediately followed up by, like, another long 30-page speech. Um, like, this is a really strange decision, a really strange move. Um, and oftentimes it doesn't come off at all. Um, like, in the great history of literature, there are a fair number of cases where some writer will suddenly get up on their high horse and deliver this, you know, big speech through a character's monologue. Either you get something like John Galt's speech at the end of Atlas Shrugged, which goes on far too long and ends up being basically just Anne Rand getting super-duper preachy about her philosophy of objectivism and the greatness of capitalism. On the other hand, you get stuff like Tolstoy in War and Peace, who just sort of loses the thread of his discussion and then delivers his big speech on, you know, the philosophy of history. It happens. It's usually not great. Um, if anything, the speeches here are more integrated into the text insofar as they are the product of the characters that Dostoevsky has created and not just some opportunity to soapbox his way to some polemical conclusion in his text, but at the same time that makes them, if anything, less relevant. Um, these characters were not these crucial perspectives through which we process the universe. Like, I just got through arguing that Ivan's perspective is itself not the, you know, primary perspective that we're supposed to interpret this text by, and yet it's way more relevant to Dostoevsky's themes and Dostoevsky's ideas and Dostoevsky's overall plot than either Kirillovich or Fedyuch, or what is his name, um, Fedyukovich's perspective perspective suddenly offered to us at the end of this entire book. Um, so in this lecture and in the preceding lecture, we're going to try and figure out what the heck the deal is here. Why are we ending this particular way? Um, obviously, there is an epilogue after this, which is going to be super important and really will probably have all the great thematic value. Um, but I want to talk about what Dostoevsky is telling us about his characters, about this conflict, about the judicial system in Russia at this point in time, as well as his whole view on Enlightenment-era philosophy as it's filtered in through um, through St. Petersburg and Moscow into these this backwater province where it does seem so very much out of place. Um, so we're going to take this in stages. First, I want to talk about sort of the 
business of the trial overall. Who are our major players? What are the things that we come to expect? The things that become habitual over the course of this? Um, and then I want to talk about the witnesses. Each of the people who actually get up to the stand and their sort of climactic moment, finally sort of trying to parse everything that has happened to them and what that actually does to them, because we do get some really interesting climactic moments for a lot of our characters. But then lastly, and as the sort of third part of our discussion today, I want to talk about the prosecutor's speech. Everything from his, you know, praising of Russia and how he considers this to be this, you know, like climactic moment in the history of Russia all the way to, you know, through his description of the events to his description of the galloping troika and what that actually represents for him, for Dostoevsky, and for Russia in general. Um, so let's start with the setup here. What are we looking at? What is the trial as we're understanding it? Um, and first off, we have to note that this is a public trial. Um, this is apparently after the judicial reforms of 1846. No, I have no idea what exactly the details are here. Um, what I do know is that this is a product of a number of reforms that have been taking place in Russia in the 19th century. Um, and that this is, you know, this is new. This idea of an open forum court is being passed around in the 19th century throughout Europe, is getting popularized, and is ultimately adopted by Alexander II and his predecessors in their efforts to sort of make Russia more modernized, make it keep up with the European world at large. So this is new and it is alien. Um, we need to emphasize that at the outset. Like, we have not gotten the sense of what a trial is supposed to be in Russia. And as a result, the legal system here is really rough and ready. Um, Dostoevsky frequently writes in the writer's diary and elsewhere about these kinds of trials, and he gets very worked up about them. Apparently everyone in Russia does. Because they are public trials, they become a kind of public entertainment in their own right. Um, and without the sort of oversight without the sort of clandestine or, you know, like locked doors that we usually experience here in trials in America, um, it very much becomes a sort of circus in its own right. And that is the way that Dostoevsky describes it here. Notice that the peasants and the, the lords and ladies of the town, even people from outside of the town, like all of these people show up for this trial. Um, we get a giant pile of lawyers who show up who don't really seem to have that much to do with the actual trial proceedings, who are apparently just here to see it for the purposes of legal precedent or whatever is going on in their minds. But also we just have all of these sort of busybodying lords and ladies and so on who just show up out of sheer curiosity. Um, there are tickets to this trial being sold, which just boggles my mind all by itself. I assume, although I do not know, again, my knowledge of the 19th century Russian judicial system is wanting uh, for all I'm going to end up having to say about this. Um, but it certainly seems that this just happens to be a clever way for the court system to get revenue. Honestly, I'm kind of wondering why we don't do that ourselves in some respect. Like anyone who is, in fact, showing up to a trial should, I suspect, have to pay some kind of fee or some kind. Um, but suffice it to say that the reasoning behind this, the reason why all these people are coming, are not necessarily to see justice done or out of curiosity for the legal process. They're here to see a scandal. 
And Dostoevsky goes in great detail talking about the expectations of the various factions involved. And it usually falls along gender lines. Um, he notes that the women all tend to be defenders of Dmitri. He is a strapping young gentleman. He is good with the ladies. They're keen to see him as this sort of ladies' man and to sort of see him acquitted, even though they, and Dostoevsky emphasizes this, they don't believe that he is innocent. The thinking here is that the ladies want to see him acquitted, see him found not guilty, not because he is not guilty of his father's death, but because he is a good man and our general humanitarian impulses will triumph and that ultimately we will give him a second chance. And notice, this is something that happens fairly frequently in the Russian judicial system at this time. Dostoevsky in the Writer's Diary frequently notes that there are occasions in Russian history, in the Russian judi judicial system, when the jury on at, at a particular trial will sort of discard the evidence altogether and rule either in favor of the defendant or against the defendant based on some psychological reason. Not because they think that this person is guilty or not guilty, but because they think this person doesn't deserve punishment or does deserve punishment even if they're not guilty. Um, the peasants and the jurors tend to have a sort of independence of the legal proceedings. Like, we in America, we tend to think that the responsibility of the jury is to find out whether a person is guilty or innocent. If they're guilty, they're punished. If they're innocent, they're not punished. Um, these psychological elements are not supposed to enter the judicial mind. Like, as someone who's sat on a grand jury, I very much had that emphasized to me over and over and over again during the proceedings. Uh, the purpose of a jury in an American court system, at least here in the 20th century after it has been practiced for long, as long as it has, is to basically function as the objective, you know, incisive perspective necessary. If we could replace them with computers, we would. Um, but here in Russia, that's not the case. And again, part of this whole circus atmosphere that Dostoevsky is presenting to us is a sort of circus entertainment and circus unpredictability. Um, the jurors will do what jurors do. And you'll notice the last chapter of this section, which we haven't read yet, is this, the peasants stood up for themselves, which is a phrase frequently employed by writers at the time. Dostoevsky himself uses it, and he's using it, when he uses it, he's usually parodying some other writer who is also employing it. The idea of, a, of the peasants standing up for themselves is this idea that despite the evidence, despite whatever compelling arguments are made by the prosecutor or the defense, despite whatever, you know, compelling reasons there are to, you know, totally condemn this person or totally acquit this person, oftentimes the peasants don't do what is expected of them. They do not act predictably, and instead they stand up for themselves. They do what they want to do. Um, there are a lot of human factors here, in short, and Dostoevsky is very much emphasizing the human factors. Remember, back when we were talking about Dmitri and his interrogation, the emphasis there was that the prosecutor and the, the various officials were too focused on the hard evidence. They were not seeing the personality of Dmitri, the reasons why Dmitri is telling the truth. And Dostoevsky seems to be criticizing those officials on that front. If anything, Dostoevsky is going out of his way here to emphasize the opposite problem. 
Um, here we have a trial, and the trial is informed by a whole bunch of things that have absolutely nothing to do with the facts of the case. There are a bunch of personalities involved, there are people second-guessing those personalities, there are people speculating about those personalities. At every stage, Dostoevsky, at every stage that we would think something totally rational, something purely evidential, some, you know, turning point in the case might be definitive or not, Dostoevsky almost always goes out of his way to show us what is the crowd doing, what is the jury thinking, what is the psychology involved. There are always extenuating factors here, and there are always personal issues more than there are purely rational enlightenment values here on display. This is a human thing Dostoevsky wants to emphasize. We cannot at any time get away from the humanness of this legal proceeding. And whether or not that humanness is good or bad will remain to be seen. We will talk about that as we get to these sorts of issues. But notice that since Dostoevsky has, throughout this entire novel, been very concerned with public opinion, especially when we saw the Elder Zosima and his body sort of decaying and giving off that horrible stench, and we saw people, you know, jeering and laughing about the good man brought low, here we see something very similar. As much as this is supposed to be an enlightened, rational legal pro process that has been employed here in Russia, Dostoevsky is emphasizing that it is, on the other hand, just as much a matter of mob mentality. Here are all of these people who are interested only in a show, who are personally invested in the case for reasons that don't make any sense. Women who are interested in Dmitri purely because he's a ladies' man, men who have a grudge against Dmitri because he picked fights with them at some point, or because they're sick and tired of their wives and daughters talking about how handsome he is. We have a whole bunch of biases here, and those biases do, in fact, influence the outcome of the trial. Even if they do not influence the actual verdict, they're going to influence the way that Dmitri is perceived and the way that the jury will, in fact, perceive him. And notice, too, as much as, you know, there are all of these important turning points and there are new evidences that are sort of submitted, Dostoevsky also frequently emphasizes the effect that even if, you know, the doctor, Herzenstube, has a really compelling argument for why Dmitri should have been looking over at the ladies on the left, um, his effect isn't nearly as compelling. Whether or not the evidence is valid, whether or not it does in fact contribute to, you know, the innocence or perceived guilt of Dimitri, at the end of the day, the psychological effect of these witnesses, of these testimonies, of these evidences is just as important for Dostoevsky as the actual evidence itself. As much as we, again, in America, like to imagine our juries as being impartial, being concerned only with the testimony of the evidence, the testimony of the witnesses, and trying to ascertain whether or not a person is guilty beyond some reasonable doubt. Notice that Dostoevsky is basically arguing that, at least in the Russian system, and P.S. also in our own, it has so much more to do with the actual psychologies involved, the people decision-making processes that are invisible even to oneself. Um, we are making these decisions about guilt or innocence. These people's lives hang in the balance, and it really has very little to do with logic or rationality, and everything to do with perception, with popularity, with weird psychological factors 
So again, notice that every time that we are presented with these new evidences, notice Dostoevsky's emphasis on this and the way that it informs the trial overall. And notice too that that whole business of this prejudicial treatment of one person or another based on their effect starts with Dmitri. Um, from the very moment that he walks in, we have all of these sorts of perspectives flying around about Dmitri, um, about Dmitri's interactions with the courtroom, with Dmitri's interactions with the people, whether he knows it or not. Again, the ladies are here because Dmitri is a ladies' man. They want to see him, uh, this handsome man acquitted um, for his nobility, for his virtues, even if he did in fact kill his own father. Um, on the other hand, we should notice Dimitri is still Dimitri. He's the same person we've been running into this entire novel. So it shouldn't come as a surprise to us when Dimitri has a lot of difficulty actually keeping his emotions in check here. Frequently, Dimitri is guilty of outbursts. Um, people will ask him a fairly you know, mundane question, do you have a response to the testimony that has been presented by this witness? And Dimitri will frequently end up saying something irrelevant. Um, when, in fact, Smerdyakov's death is announced at the trial, Dmitri bursts out, he died like a dog, and the judge has to, like, calm him down. The judge frequently rebukes Dmitri, um, and frequently says that he has to restrain his outbursts, restrain his testimony, respond only to what is asked, and not provide a whole bunch of ridiculous and inappropriate details. And notice Dostoevsky also emphasizes about this, both in the narrator's voice and in the judge's voice, that these outbursts are not a good look for Dmitri. They turn both the court and the crowd against him. Every time that he, you know, shouts out that Smerdyakov is a dog, every time that he adds some evidence out of his own passion rather than out of some sort of rational response to what's been said, this turns the people and turns the court against him. And the judge especially seems to be biased against Dmitri because Dmitri cannot control himself, because Dmitri doesn't seem to be comporting himself as it seems that an accused guilty person should. Um, whether or not this is perceived to be evidence of his guilt doesn't seem to be relevant here. What it, mean, what it means for Dmitri is that people like him less. They are going to be less inclined to be sympathetic to him. They're going to be less inclined to give him the benefit of the doubt, and they're going to be less inclined to let him uh, off the hook, not go to jail, regardless of whether they think that he is innocent or guilty. Dimitri comports himself in a way that makes everyone grumpy, and that grumpiness will ultimately redound against Dimitri, as both the narrator and the judge would attest. If, in fact, this is just a mob circus kind of trial, if this is really just a battle of public opinion, Dimitri's not a great competitor on that front. He is frequently turning people against himself. He doesn't know how this game is played, in short. And this shouldn't surprise us. Dimitri has never conformed to conventional perspectives. He's always been an abrasive dude. He has always made people angry out of a sense of his own nobility, pride, and honesty. Dimitri doesn't care on some level. And like we said in the last couple of lectures, Dimitri doesn't care about the outcome of this trial at all in many ways. As much as his fate hangs in the balance, as much as he and Grushenka might spend their life together in town, living a you know civilized, normal existence, or whether they'll be in Siberia, 
they're going to be together. Dimitri knows this. So the outcome as far as his life is concerned isn't going to concern him that much, and his outcome as far as his personal convictions are concerned isn't going to matter that much. Dimitri has said he feels guilty. Even if he did not kill his father, and he emphasizes he did not kill his father, he is very much guilty before his father for hating him, and he's guilty before the town for all the bad things he's done. Dimitri has, in his heart of hearts, already made his decision, already decided to perceive himself as guilty and to, as the theme suggests, become the corn that falls to the ground and gives forth fruit. Dimitri is reformed. Whether or not the trial gives him a chance to express that reformation is all that remains to be seen. But for Dimitri, it really doesn't matter. Um, Dimitri's won his battle. It's already over for him. And in many ways, as a consequence, he's kind of the least interesting character in this whole proceedings. He's typically Dimitri. He keeps his outbursts. He keeps saying inappropriate things. He keeps ruffling people's feathers. But compared to the likes of Katerina Ivanovna, or Grushenka, or Alyosha, or Ivan, or even the prosecutor and the defense attorney who do have these big epiphanies, who do speak passionately and from the heart, Dimitri's kind of just here. He's just here for the ride. He is an important character in these proceedings, but he's not an important development. He has no further revelation to contribute. He's made his peace with everything that's gone on, and nobody and nothing that anyone says at this point is going to come as a surprise to Dimitri. It's all known to him. The closest we get is when Alyosha, in fact, realizes that Dimitri has the, the amulet, or when Katerina Ivanovna sort of flips and turns on Dimitri. In all of these cases, Dimitri does react, but doesn't really change. He just recognizes the change that has happened in this other person. He confirms or denies, uh, like affirms or rejects what has transpired. Um, and on the one hand, he is this important fixture of the trial. On the other, he really isn't. Um, his decisions have been made. Now, the third character, or the third group of characters that I want to talk about before we actually dive into the witness testimony are the actual prosecutor and the defense attorney themselves. The prosecutor we know. It's Ippoli Kirillovich. We met him back during the interrogation of Dmitri. He is the prosecutor for the town. He is well-respected. He considers himself a psychologist. But we've also been warned way back when that he might think he's a better prosecutor than he actually is. He's not actually that great. He is talented, and a lot of people think that he's talented, but he's a little big for his britches. And as much as he is convinced throughout the interrogation that he has caught Dimitri in multiple traps, for real, he's just kind of been put off the scent and has missed important details in Dimitri's testimony. Ippoli Kirillovich here is similarly perceived. He is a local. He is out of his depth. Um, he recognizes the significance, the importance of this trial, but his opponent here is Fetyukovich, this really important defense attorney who's apparently come all the way from Moscow, presumably at Katerina Ivanovna's request, although we don't actually get that confirmed. It seems that he's actually just here to, you know, show off, to present himself, to, you know, make this big, important, publicly acknowledged case and make his career as a consequence. And everyone's terrified of Fetyukovich. 
especially Kirill or Ippoli Kirillovich. Um, the prosecutor here is very much not nearly as famous as Fetyukovich, and he's kind of shaking in his boots. Like Dostoevsky emphasizes that Ippoli Kirillovich is really intimidated by Fetyukovich, this super famous defense attorney coming all the way from Moscow to this tiny little backwater province. Ippoli Kirillovich is out of his depth and he knows it. But at the same time, he is proud. He refuses to step down from this challenge. He wants to, you know, actually cut his teeth on this case. It fell into his lap. He's been here since the beginning. He's going to see it through, and he's going to put every fiber of his being into it. We're even told uh, over the course of his speech, as well as the introductions here, that this whole thing apparently has a profound effect on Ipilin Kirillovich. Like, he is shaken after his testimony is presented. Um, he absolutely, to the, his heart of hearts, believes that Dmitri is guilty, puts every ounce of energy into presenting the witnesses, creating this case against Dmitri, crafting his speech, and ultimately delivering it in, with like this feverish sort of passion. And as they like go lie down, because he's basically like shaking after its delivery. And he's not even gonna live that long. Like he, it is said, you know, Dostoevsky tells us that, you know, this he perceived this as his swan song, as, you know, his final big case, as the biggest thing that he'd ever done and the last big thing he'll ever do. And it's true, because within a number of months, he's dead of consumption, presumably because his nerves, his constitution have been so weakened by his participation in this big trial. It's all too much for him, but he's going to be damned if he's going to let it slip through his fingers. This is his big contribution to the entire Russian legal system. This is Ippoli Kirillovich's moment to shine. And it is too much for him, but it is his, and specifically his. Every moment of his life, every bit of training he's received, every case that he's undertaken has basically been practice for this one. So for Ippoli Kirillovich, this case really is life or death to him. Um, and we should note that. Again, in this case, in this trial where everything is so human, it's significant for us that Dostoevsky makes the prosecutor out to be perhaps the most human of them all. Ippoli Kirillovich has so many reasons to be here, has this profound emotional connection to what is going on in this case, and it has very little to do with the evidence. He is convinced of Dmitri's guilt, not because of the evidence, but because of his interactions with Dmitri from the beginning. Um, as far as Ippoli Kirillovich is concerned, he has basically coerced Dmitri's guilt out of him. Um, even in his big prosecutor's speech towards the end of this section, he, he emphasizes that he and, you know, his fellow interrogator, Nikolai Ivanovich, sort of tricked, tr trapped Dmitri into giving forth this flimsy evidence. It's not the flimsiest or the, or it's not the flimsiness or the reliability of the evidence that Ippoli Kirillovich is so caught up with. It's his own intuition, his own intellect. He believes that he has deceived Dmitri, and therefore that is evidence enough of his guilt. Um, so it is all psychology here. 
Again, Ippoli Kirillovich is a psychologist first and foremost, and most of his arguments, most of his evidences will be psychological in nature. Much as there are all of these hard physical evidences, it's the interpretation of what those evidences mean that really drives Ippoli Kirillovich and, dri and drives his explanation uh, of, of how they work and how these people have interacted with each other. But we'll get to his speech in its own time. Fetyukovich, though, has a completely different sort of agenda and seems to be far more removed from the processes that, that we've seen here. Um, notice, everyone who we've seen come from Moscow has a certain amount of distance to Dmitry, to the Karamazovs, to all of the characters in a way that the local officials and, and important figures in the town don't. And Fetyukovich is no exception. Like the specialist doctor who showed up to to like uh, check on Ilyushka um, that Katerina Ivanovna hired from Moscow, he seems to be fairly detached from the proceedings. And it's important that Fetyukovich, part of what makes him so terrifying to Ippoli Kirillovich and to the uh, members of the town, is because he is inscrutable. They assume he's got this master plan in mind, some unbeatable strategy that is, you know, the result of his long training as one of the premier defense attorneys in Moscow. Um, and yet that plan is apparently not something that anyone can actually pick out at this point. The strategy that Fetyukovich has presented over the course of the trial is that he tends to delegitimize the evidences brought forth by the prosecution. His strategy seems to be to cast doubt on the character of the witnesses, um, which is interesting, especially because it seems to be an extremely important component to Dostoevsky's understanding of this trial. Fetyukovich, like Dostoevsky, is making sure that we remember the humanness of all of the witnesses and all of their testimony. Just as Dostoevsky can't give us a witness testimony without talking about what did the public respond, how does Ippoli Kirillovich respond, you know, does it come off well, does it have a good effect, does, does the judge take another opportunity to chide Dmitri, Fetyukovich is kind of in the same role here. Every time some witness gets up on the stand to present some apparently damning testimony of Dmitri and his behavior, Fetyukovich will almost always conclude the cross-examination by showing to everyone how untrustworthy that witness actually is. So we get this kind of binary view of many of the characters that have been so important to this text and which now present their evidence and their, as witnesses. We see them both as the totally objective person presenting a case that is without question and presenting evidence that seems to be hard and damning, but we also see the human frailty of that character. We also see Fetyukovich take them apart in some way for reasons that we don't fully understand at this point, but which certainly serve Dostoevsky's thematic emphasis here in painting this trial as, again, a human endeavor, a circus as much as it is a mechanism of the law. Um, so with that in mind, let's look at the witnesses. Let's talk about what they present for the prosecution and what the defense does to them. What evidence they present that does seem to create a good effect and what evidence they present that doesn't seem to have much of an effect at all. 
Now, I'm not going to cover every single one of the witness testimonies. It's significant that some of our major characters don't even bother to show up. Like, Madame Kotlikov is apparently just not even in town for the trial, and she's just got some kind of written statement that is presented to the court. Um, but we are going to hit most of the major ones and talk about exactly what it means for that character and exactly what it means for, you know, the big climactic plot movement of the trial overall. So with that in mind, let's start with Grigory. Obviously, Grigory is an incredibly important witness. He is the one who reports seeing the door open before he is beaten by Dmitri, and therefore presents this very conclusive evidence that somebody had gone in to see Fyodor, or Fyodor had come out at that point before Smerdyakov could theoretically have gotten in to murder him, and thus, you know, this is the real clear evidence that, like, prevents anyone from, from uh, assuming that Smerdyakov was, in fact, the murderer. Grigory is is presented here as a very, like, meticulously honest person. His effect on people is good. Everybody likes Dmitri. Everybody trusts his testimony. Much as Fetyukovich very much tries to discredit Grigory, tries to emphasize that Grigory was drunk at the time uh, because of, you know, he had downed his spirits along with his, you know, attempt to cure his back, um, it doesn't really work all that well. Where Fetyukovich frequently does sort of dismantle the argumentation of the, of the witness, dismantles the evidence, the reliability of their testimony, it kind of doesn't stick for Grigory. And multiple times you see Fetyukovich sort of present a counter-argument to what Grigory presents and is kind of taken off guard by Grigory's guileless response. Um, so, for example, like, consider the discussion that Fetyukovich has with Grigory over his consumption of the spirits. This is on page 665 to 666. Um, Grigory looked dumbly at the questioner and, after a short silence, muttered, there was sage in it. Like, Fetyukovich asks him what was in the, the remedy, and Grigory says there was sage. Just sage? You don't recall anything else? There was plantain, too. And pepper, perhaps? Fetyukovich inquired further. And pepper. And so on and all steeped in vodka, in spirits. A slight laugh flitted through the courtroom. Notice that Grigory here is being delicate. He doesn't want to say vodka itself. Spirits is a more euphemistic term for the alcoholic concoction that he's created. So, in spirits, no less. After rubbing your back, you drank the rest of the bottle with a certain pious prayer known only to your wife. Is that so? I drank it. Approximately how much did you drink? Just approximately. A shot glass or two? About a tumbler. About a tumbler, no less. Maybe even a tumbler and a half? Grigory fell silent. He seemed to have understood something. About a tumbler and a half of pure spirits. Not bad at all, wouldn't you say? Enough to see the doors of heaven open, not to mention the door to the garden. So Fedukovich is clearly trying to present this case that actually Grigory's testimony is irrelevant because it was produced while he was drunk, and therefore he could have imagined anything. Enough to see the doors of heaven, much less the door to the door to the garden. But Grigory remains silent. He picks up on the fact that Fetyukovich is trying to discredit him. Do you know for certain Fetyukovich was biting deeper and deeper, whether you were awake or not at the moment when you saw the door to the garden open? I was standing on my feet. That's no proof that you were awake. More and more laughter in the courtroom. Could you, for instance, have answered at that moment if someone had asked you something, say, for instance, what year it is? That I don't know. And what year of the present era? What year of our Lord is it? Do you know? 
Grigory stood looking bewildered, staring straight at his tormentor. It seemed strange indeed that he apparently did not know what year it was. But perhaps you do know how many fingers you have on your hand? Fetukovich at this point goes all the way to insulting Grigory. And this is a step too far. I am a subordinate man, Grigory suddenly said loudly and distinctly. If the authorities see fit to deride me, then I must endure it. Fetukovich was a little taken aback, as it were, but the presiding judge also intervened with a didactic reminder to the defense attorney that he ought to ask more appropriate questions. Fetukovich, having listened, bowed with dignity and announced that he had no further questions. Notice, on the one hand, Dostoevsky emphasizes in this paragraph that Fetukovich was successful. Grigory's testimony is to some degree undermined. But Fetukovich is an elitist. He is specifically interrogating Grigory with the intention of discrediting him as a foolish, stupid peasant, and Grigory isn't willing to go that far. Grigory pushes back against him, stresses, I am a subordinate man, if you're going to make fun of me, I guess I have to deal with it, very much revealing Fetukovich's procedure here. On the one hand, Fetukovich is a master. He is a specialist. He is extremely good at his job. He is one of the greatest defense attorneys in Moscow. He absolutely is punching below his weight class here. Um, he, this, is, this entire trial, as much as he is an expert at the information, as much as everybody is surprised how intimately he knows all the details of this case, on the other hand, they also regard him as an elitist, as not appreciating the character of the people here. And Dostoevsky is showing this here as well, uh, here to us as well. On the one hand, we might be inspired to think that Fetukovich is supposed to be the hero of this trial. He is the one defending Dmitri at all. We, the, the readers, know that Dmitri is innocent. We saw Smerdyakov's co confession with Ivan, and therefore Fetukovich may very well be our champion. But what Dostoevsky is emphasizing here is that Fetukovich is very good at his job. But he's also not acquainted with the personal character, especially of the peasants in this province. Grigory manages to show Fetukovich up. As much as Fetukovich does successfully question and sort of, like, lead the public to question Grigory's testimony, he doesn't do so without taking a wound himself. Fetukovich's sort of bullheaded disregard for the character of these peasants, for the character of these townsfolk, is going to work against him here. He believes he can do more than he can, just as Ippoli Kirillovich believes that he can do more than he can. But notice, too, that the effect here is that Grigory is undermined. He is hurt by this, personally. He feels personally offended by this distrust. Just as Dmitri was personally offended by all of the questions that Ippoli Kirillovich asked him back in the interrogation. These are people. They have feelings, and their feelings are significant here. So notice, like, even when, you know, the judge asks, do you have any, or does Dimitri have anything to say concerning the te testimony, we get a strange sort of interaction here. Except for the door, it's all true as he said, Mitya cried loudly. For combing the lice out of my hair, I thank him. For forgiving me my blows, I thank him. The old man has been honest all his life and was as faithful to my father as 700 poodles. Watch your words, defendant, the judge said sternly. I am not a poodle, Grigory also grumbled. Then I am. I am a poodle, cried Mitya. If he's offended, I take it upon myself and ask his forgiveness. I was a beast and cruel to him. I was cruel to Aesop, too, meaning his father. 
Notice what is actually happening here. On the one hand, Grigory has presented his testimony. It's very rational. It's very carefully accounted for. You know, he, But on the other hand, it is personal to him. The fact that he makes this claim is something that he holds dear. The fact that Fedukovich questions him, discredits him, is a personal attack on Grigory. And ultimately, Grigory is doing this out of loyalty for his master, for his household, and honestly, to some degree, for his country, in all likelihood. But notice that there is a personal connection between Grigory and Dmitri as well. Dmitri reaches out to Grigory and tells him that he feels gratitude for everything that Grigory has done for him, especially because Dmitri did almost kill Grigory. And Grigory's response is maybe a little cold here. I am not a poodle, he says. On the one hand, he still has his pride, and Dmitri has offended that pride, just as Fetyukovich has, has offended that pride. Grigory feels stung here. But on the other hand, Dmitri is reaching for a personal connection, and that connection isn't one that we actually get to see. Dmitri wants to apologize to Grigory for beating him, for staving his head in. Um, Dmitri was scared that he had killed Grigory, which would have been a true act of ungrateful behavior on Dmitri's part. Remember, it's the thing that drove him the most when, in fact, he was being interrogated. When he's told that Grigory survived, he's so relieved. That was what he felt the guiltiest about. Not the pestle, not the money, not any of that. He was worried he had, in fact, become a murderer. That's why he tells the coachman that he was a murderer. Dimitri is trying to apologize here, and I suspect that Grigory just doesn't receive the apology or doesn't accept it. It's hard to say which. By insisting, I am not a poodle, we're seeing Grigory with his defenses up because he has been attacked, because this became personal to him. And Dimitri, too, is moved by this. He realizes he's misspoken and tries to undo the damage, but it's too late, and we're already on to the next witness. Which is Rakuten, by the way. Rakuten has been a fairly interesting character for us throughout this entire novel. He's sort of been foil to Alyosha and foil to Ivan, and operating that very unique role of being sort of like an intellectual, but a profiteering intellectual. And here we see Rakuten at his most Rakuten. Um, at this point, he has apparently been collecting all of the evidence from all of the trial, and now he delivers this apparently incredibly well-informed speech, and everybody is very impressed with Rakuten. He has this brilliant effect. Everybody's like, well, that's pretty damning evidence against Dimitri. But as we well know, Rakuten is just a busybody. He's kind of a wreck. He's a terrible person. He has been collecting all this gossip specifically with the purpose of advancing his own career. And notice that's exactly what Fedyukovich points out about Rakuten. As much as Rakuten has presented this incredibly capable discussion, Dostoevsky writes on page 667, Rakuten's presentation captivated the public by its independence of thoughts and the remarkable nobility of its flight. Two or three spontaneous bursts of applause were even heard, namely that those passages were mentioned was made of serfdom and of Russia suffering from disorder. Again, Rakuten is playing to the audience. He's playing up his own intelligence. He's, you know, saying his word here. But it's out of place and inappropriate, and it's also hypocritical. And when Fedyukovich starts asking Rakuten questions in the cross-examination, he immediately starts with his mercenary motives here. 
Are whether are you not indeed the same Mr. Rakuten whose pamphlet, The Life of the Elder, Father Zosima, Fallen Asleep in God, published by the diocesan authorities, full of profound and religious thoughts, and with an excellent and pious dedication to his grace, I have recently had the great pleasure of reading. And Rakuten, again, is flattered, but also cautious. Fedukovich er, immediately follows it up by asking about Grushenka, Miss Svetlov, which it's especially noteworthy here that Dostoevsky has not told us Grushenka's last name until literally the trial has begun. All of a sudden, Grushenka, this woman of ill repute who everybody knows in this sort of informal and impersonal kind of way, now becomes a formal person. Miss Svetlov, not Grushenka, the diminutive form of her actual name and patronymic. We, Fetchukov, or Fedjukovich immediately starts pressing Rakuten about his relationship with Miss Svetlov, Grushenka, specifically with an eye towards obtaining the admission from Rakuten that he accepted money from Miss Svetlov because he brought Alyosha to her, emphasizing again the mercenary character of Rakuten's in interactions with these people. So he says, I understand only too well, you, like ever, anyone else, might be interested for your own part in the acquaintance of a young and beautiful woman who readily received the flower of local youth, but I simply wanted to inquire. It is known to us that about two months ago, Miss Svetlov was extremely eager to make the acquaintance of the youngest Karamazov, Alexei Fyodorovich, and just for bringing him to her, and precisely the monetary, monastery attire he was then wearing, you... She promised you 25 rubles to be handed over as soon as you brought him, and that, as we know, took pl place precisely on the evening of the day that ended in the tragic catastrophe that has led to the present trial. You brought Alexei Karamazov to Miss Svetlov, but did you get the 25-ruble reward from her? That is what I wanted to hear from you. And Rakuten is embarrassed. It was a joke, he says. I only took it for a joke, to give it back later. And Fetchukovich says, so you did give it back, right? And Rakuten admits, no, he hasn't. Of course I'll give it back. I'm going to soon. Rakuten is shamed here. Fetchukovich is specifically pointing to Rakuten is getting all of this evidence, presenting all of this evidence, specifically because he's once again profiteering. Fetchukovich, conveniently enough, cuts to the core of Rakuten's motivations here. And it's not the last time that Rakuten is shamed in this section. Um, it is very much emphasized later that Rakuten is actually Grushenka's cousin, which explains so much of his behavior with her and so much of his her behavior with him, and very much sort of demeans the whole business. Everything that Rakuten thought that he held over Alyosha once upon a time was because of a familial relationship that Alyosha didn't know about. Rakuten is not the, you know, street smart player that he presents himself as. No, he's taking advantage of a familial relationship, and he's trying to get all this information about the town and profiting off of it because now it suddenly is in the public eye. Rakuten is a scumbag, in short, and Fedukovich very much reveals that to the entire town. Rakuten is more human than most of the people who are presented here, and Fetch it is perfectly right for Fetukovich's particular breed of inquisition and interrogation. Rakuten is a terrible person, is acting out of purely selfish motives, and Fetukovich is looking specifically for that sort of behavior. Now, we get a number of other witnesses here, and the same sort of activity is done. We get Snegirov shows up on the stand. 
Although he ultimately just, like, starts crying because of Elyushka, and the whole thing very much dissolves pretty quickly. Trifon Borisovich, the, the innkeeper over at Makroya, is also interrogated, and we get the same sort of binary on the one hand. He's the one who testifies, yes, it was absolutely 3,000 rubles that feel that Dmitri spent the first time that he came to Makroya, but at the same time... Fetjukovic is very quick to point out whether or not Trifon Borisovich did in fact present the money that the the couple of people um, gave to him in trust for Dmitri, whether or not Trifon Borisovich was in fact stealing from Dmitri, and Trifon Boris Borisovich is kind of like suddenly hedging, and yeah, yeah, I gave it back to him. Like, the whole thing very much devolves into... Fetjukovic pointing out the greed of Trifon Borisovich. So again, character after character were presented in this way. Grigory was drunk. Um, Rakitin was profiteering. Trifon Borisovich was actually stealing from Dmitri. And finally, we get to the two Polish fellows, the two pans, Rublenski and uh, I forget the name of the other one. Um, and both of them are also discredited. Yes, Dmitri did in fact offer them 3,000 rubles to carry Grushenka away, but they were also cheating at cards, and they were also trying to steal from Dmitri. Um, in every case, and significantly for our thematic purposes especially, as much as this is Fetyukovich's strategy, it's also Dostoevsky's reminders. All of these characters have this greedy streak in them. With the exception of Grigory, which, you know, his testimony is in fact airtight, misinformed though it may be. Um, what Fetyukovich is emphasizing to us, that all of these people are untrustworthy and that all of their testimony is subject to question, very much dovetails with Dostoevsky's own reminders here that Rakitin is untrustworthy and that he is profiting off of his testimony, that the Trifon Borisovich was in fact trying to steal from Dmitri and has his own agenda for, you know, trying to talk about Dmitri's finances and interests. The two Polish fellows, as much as they were, you know, reliable in, in saying that Dmitri did offer them 3,000 rubles, were also terrible people on their own right. Dostoevsky is routinely emphasizing that all of these witness testimonies are in some ways unreliable, not just because of the reasons that Fetyukovich comes up with, but because these are human beings. It's not as simple as that. Humans are always going to have doubts and question and personal motivations creep into their testimony. They are not just cameras taking perfectly ambivalent, objective uh, evidence of the world around them. Which brings us to the next group of experts, i.e. the doctors. Dr. Herzenstube, the Moscow doctor that Katerina Ivanovich hired, and Dr. Varvinsky all get their own chapter. Medical expertise and one pound of nuts. Um, what Dostoevsky is very much emphasizing here is something that you'll actually see a lot um, in 19th century discussions of the medical profession, as well as, you know, stuff that you'll find in G.K. Chesterton, stuff that you'll find in older descriptions of the medical profession. Dostoevsky is very much making fun of the doctors here, and for good reason. Remember, Herzenstube has kind of been a point of some silliness for the entirety of the book. Like, uh, over and over, we had, you know, Herzenstube coming in to look at someone and being like, I don't know what to make of it, and then leaving. Um, or giving perfectly useless advice. 
Persian Stoob is in many ways very foolish. And the dispute that shows up here between the three doctors, hers and Stoob, emphasizing that, yes, Dimitri is lost, has lost the use of his senses, he's clearly suffering from some kind of nervous disorder, specifically because when he walked into the room, he looked straight ahead instead of looking over to the left at the ladies, where the Moscow doctor is like, yes, he's very dis disturbed, he should have been looking over at the right at his defense attorney. And then we get Varvinsky, who says, actually, he's perfectly sane, and he was doing exactly what he was supposed to do, looking straight forward at the judge. Notice... They're all quibbling over this really subjective thing, this really innocuous detail. And there's something really significant about all of the weight that all of these characters have been placing on the slightest actions of Dmitry Karamazov throughout the proceedings. On the one hand, Dostoevsky has been, noticed, has been noting this is a very human thing. Psychology is very much the crucial issue at the core of all of these trial proceedings. But at the same time, Dostoevsky seems to be emphasizing, especially in the testimony of the doctors, that it's not something quantitative. It's not something that we can actually analyze and deduce. Many of the things that Dmitri has done are inexplicable. They are not rational. And trying to boil them down to some sort of rational explanation is wrong-headed here. The doctors are analyzing the finest details of, of Dmitry Karamazov's behavior and coming up with wildly disparate explanations for what's going on. In short, their profession is very subjective, very touch-and-go, and very much subject to debate. Herzen Stube and the Moscow doctor, in their sort of friction with one another, both end up totally discrediting each other. And Dostoevsky em emphasizes this, both as an effect caused uh, among the people, like the, this is what the public takes away, but also as we're supposed to take, take it away. It's ridiculous what they're saying, and the arguments they're presenting are equally ridiculous. If anything, the person who does come off the best is Varvinsky. Varvinsky, Dostoevsky emphasizes, is the one who everybody believes. Um, everybody agrees with him already, and even Dmitri yells out after Varvinsky presents his testimony, Bravo, Leech, precisely right. Dmitri is in his right mind. He is not left his senses. He is not suffering from some mental illness. He is, in fact, behaving perfectly rationally here. But the reasoning, the interpretation, the, the takeaway, that's where it gets confusing and, and ambiguous. Some would say that his rationality is evidence of his guilt. Some will say that his rationality is evidence of his, of his innocence. Some would say that his mental illness is a mitigating factor for his guilt, while others would say that his mental illness is exactly the reason why he, cre why he uh, conducted the murder in the first place. Like, it's so convoluted, so complicated, and Dostoevsky is showing us all of these potential sides, all of these details to emphasize how non-expert this expert testimony actually is. Like, this is 19th century psychological medicine, and I literally just delivered my lectures to my students in the Love and Friendship class yesterday about, you know, the potential dangers of trusting Freud in the 19th century psychoanalytical establishment. A lot of it was just hearsay and guesses and subjective and based on insufficient evidence. Um, like, it's particularly striking in this case because Freud himself delivered a 
expert diagnosis of Dostoevsky's character, calling him a repressed homosexual, despite the fact that Freud and Dostoevsky never met. Freud is only basing this diagnosis after Dostoevsky's death on the writing that he produced. It's almost all nonsense, and almost all been totally debunked. The psychological establishment in the 19th century was really rough. It was not in, at all scientific or professional the way that it is here in the 20th century after a great deal more study and research and practice have been conducted. Um, Dostoevsky is emphasizing that Herzenstub and the Moscow doctor really don't have a leg to stand on here. But notice, too, the bag of nuts. Herzenstube gets very carried away in his personal evidence, talking about his own personal relationship with Dmitri. The fact that he has this father-like appreciation for Dmitri and was very excited about the fact that he bought Dmitri this pound of nuts and, you know, taught him to to say God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in German. And Dmitri remembers it as well. And Dmitri is moved by this. I'm weeping now too, German. I'm weeping now too, you man of God, Mitya suddenly cried from his place. Notice, Herzenstube, the doctor, is also a person. He also has a personal relationship with all of the people in this town, and with Dmitri especially. The trial, as much as we see this evidence presented from this supposedly objective expert witness testimony distance, is not distanced at all. Dostoevsky ends even this chapter of expert testimony with personal anecdotes, with personal emotion and affection. Herzenstube is not a distant witness. He is foolish in his practice, and he is more wise in his personality. Varvinsky is the one who actually has the insight as far as the doctors are concerned. And again, that insight isn't based on rationality, but the personal preference of everybody's witness or everybody's uh, observations so far. They agree with Varvinsky not because he presents the most compelling argument, but because they're looking at Dimitri and they see that he seems to be acting like a rational, sane person. So they agree with him. He did the right thing. He's behaving like a sane person would. Um, so again, we have discredited experts here. Not discredited by Fetyukovich, not discredited by Dostoevsky's undermining of their, their personal vices, sort of undermining their personal character or their reliability, but simply because their profession isn't as objective as we would hope. These doctors are bad doctors, in short. Um, Dostoevsky is discrediting the whole profession in this sense, calling it all subjective hearsay, and for good reason. This sort of thing happened often in these sorts of trials. But that brings us to our bigger witnesses, the ones that are less easy to discredit and more climactic in their own development. Like, thus far, most of our witnesses, we have just, they've, we have just been treating them as minor characters. They show up, they deliver their testimony, they're dismissed, and that's all there is to it. The most major of our witnesses so far was probably Rakuten, and Rakuten does in fact get developed more, and it does sort of serve as this typically Rakutenian like shaming. You know, every time that Rakuten has tried to get one over on one of the major characters who are in fact behaving earnestly, honestly, Rakuten usually ends up shamed. 
Rakuten was shamed by Grushenka when he when she gave him the 25 rubles in the first place, and he's shamed again here when Fetyukovic makes him recall those 25 rubles and how small and petty and mercenary Rakuten actually was. When Rakuten was trying to get one over on Madame Koklikov and proposed to her in order to win her fortune, ultimately Madame Koklikov's personal preference for Perkotin got in his way, and he was shamed there as well. Um, even in front of Alyosha when he's leaving Dimitri's, Rakuten is shamed before him. His profiteering always yields shaming. His transparent motivation is almost always exposed here. But these characters are more important to our story. Rakuten serves as a foil to many of our characters, but isn't a terribly important character in his own right. But here we get our four big ones. Alyosha, Katerina Ivanovna, Grushenka, and Ivan. And in each case, they have a climactic revelation. Alyosha's is the most straightforward. Alyosha, during his testimony, during the cross-examination cross by Fetyukovich, realizes that when... Dmitri was beating on his chest, he was actually showing the location of the amulet. Alyosha recognizes that uh, Dmitri was sort of hinting at this, and Dmitri himself, like, recognizes this as well. He agrees. He shouts out to Alyosha, precisely, it's true, I was pounding on it with my fist, and, you know, everybody had, like, the whole courtroom goes into kind of a flurry here. Um, Fetyukovich pounces on this information, draws it out of Alyosha, tries to get, you know, more more evidence from him, and everybody does seem to be very impressed by this little bit of evidence from Alyosha. Like, it's something that even Ippolit Kirillovich has to concede in his, in his speech, although he ultimately, like, tries to make very little out of it, tries to emphasize how, you know, flimsy this, this uh, evidence actually is. Um, so Alyosha has his revelation. He recognizes what Dmitri was trying to tell him, and Dmitri agrees, like, sees this as this major evidence. But Alyosha is also fully developed at this point. Alyosha doesn't have any more character development to undergo. He's had his revelation. He's recognized his own guilt before God and everyone. He's already completed his redemption. Katerina Ivanovna, on the other hand, has a very different and very dramatic change in store for her here. Finally, we get to see the truth of Katerina Ivanovna and her relationship to both Dmitri and to Ivan. First, she, her testimony specifically leaves out the fact that Dmitri had basically coerced her into prostitution. You'll remember way back at the beginning of the novel when we were talking about Dmitri and her, his relationship with Katerina Ivanovna, we emphasized, you know, he was willing to give Katerina Ivanovna's father the money that he needed to clear his debts on the condition that Katerina Ivanovna come to him alone. This assumption that she was going to, in fact, put out for him. Um, he was essentially blackmailing her into prostitution. But instead, Dmitri's own nobility got the better of him. He bowed to her and gave her the money without any actual exchange of services. Now, Katerina Ivanovna has in some ways never forgiven him for this, and she's been very troubled throughout this novel as a consequence. Her character has been really difficult to pin down. And while Alyosha sort of emphasized, do you love Dmitri or do you love Ivan? And sometimes it seems like she loves Dmitri, and sometimes it seems she loves Ivan. 
Um, it's been very confusing trying to pin down exactly what Katerina Ivanovna has been feeling in any given moment. Here she finally reveals herself. First, by perpetuating the same lie. She gives her testimony, she presents the case for Dmitri, presents this case of how Dmitri, in fact, was nothing but noble to her. He, she leaves out the fact that he had propositioned her and her family, and instead presents it as though she had presented herself for the money, and Dmitri had rejected it. Now, everybody in the audience apparently suspects that something, in fact, happened here, that, that Katrina Ivanovna was not as pure as, in fact, she makes herself out to be, and Dmitri perhaps as well. But Katrina Ivanovna specifically goes out of her way to make Dmitri out to be as noble as he can possibly be presented. She leaves out the negative evidences against him, the things that she knows that could potentially argue against his character. Theoretically, because she still loves him. And the narrator himself recognizes this. That it is out of this sort of false love that she acts in this way, that she holds back both the evidence of the letter and the evidence of Dmitri's own proposition in order to paint him in the best light as possible and hopefully get him acquitted, despite the fact that Grushenka has in fact triumphed over her rivalry here. And notice too that the rivalry between Katerina Ivanovna and Grushenka is one of the key things that people are here to see. Remember that the ladies especially are here for the drama. They want to see the desperate housewives of the village of Stepovichenko, or whatever the name is. I am not going to be able to pronounce it correctly. Um, we are here to see drama. We are here for the soap opera. We want there to be a catfight between Grushenka and Katerina Ivanovna. And we don't leave dissatisfied. Katerina Ivanovna presents her sort of notably omissive defense of Dmitri, and then Grushenka shows up and presents her case, and apparently she is just 100% team Dmitri, doesn't even entertain the possibility that he is guilty, immediately tells everyone that, in fact, like, Smerdyakov was the one who, who committed the murder. Why does she believe this? Because Dmitri said so, and she trusts Dmitri absolutely. Like, on the one hand... It is very straightforward. Grushenka's character is also set in stone at this point in time. She's made her decision. She's committed to Dmitri. She doesn't have any more development to go. But at the same time, her petty grudge with Katerina Ivanovna is what everybody is paying attention to. The fact that she doesn't refer to her in any nice way. Um, she specifically goes out of her way to insult Katerina Ivanovna. She sent for me once, treated me to chocolate, wanted to charm me. She has little true shame in her. That that's what. So, again, like, even at this moment, Grushenka is jealous of Katerina Ivanovna and the relationship between Katerina Ivanovna and Dmitri, which, remember, Dmitri himself was playing up the last time that we saw him. Both of them were injuring each other, playing up their former relationships in order to ascertain whether or not the other person was, in fact, staying true to them. Did Dmitri did still have feelings for Katerina Ivanovna? Well, let me tempt him by making him jealous of Samsonov. Does Grushenka still have feelings for Samsonov? Well, let me tempt her by talking about Katerina Ivanovna. Um, we see that there is still this feud, and everybody kind of enjoys the feud, even when she sits down far away from Katerina Ivanovna, like everybody in the courtroom is sort of paying close attention to the jealous hearts of these women. But of course, everything really comes to a head when Ivan, in fact, comes up to the stand. 
and when Ivan presents his testimony, it is the testimony we expected. Ivan makes his confession here. He confesses first that Smerdyakov killed their father, Fyodor, that he did it under Ivan's direct command, and he even presents the 3,000 rubles as evidence. And everybody goes nuts for this. Um, first off, Ivan himself, like, we get the testimony from the doctors. He, in fact, has brain fever. He is delirious. You know, Ivan himself, his testimony is fragmentary. Like, at first, he just goes up and, and is talking about bread and circuses and how there wasn't a parasite. But at the same time, you know, he comes back to the stand. Like, he's about to get up, and then finally he comes back, and now it's this whole thing. And, you know, Alyosha jumps up. No, he's lying. He's delirious. He doesn't know what he's saying. Uh, Ivan even, like, proposes to put the devil, the hallucinatory devil, on the stand at some point. Um, on page 687, we get this sort of delirious rant. He's got a tail, your honor. You'd find him inadmissible. Le diable n'existe point. Pay no mind to him. He's a wretched, paltry devil. He's sure to be here somewhere, there, under the table with the material evidence. Where else would he be sitting? You see, listen to me. I told him I would not keep silent. He started telling me about the geological cataclysm. Like, he is now going back into his delirium. He falls ill again. We see the same sort of uh, details from the dream, the, the sort of experience that Ivan had with the devil, sort of coming up in his testimony irrelevantly, totally irrelevantly. Um, Ivan's obsession has sort of gotten to the point that he can't even make it to the stand for 20 minutes without lapsing into his bad dreams, his delirium. And notice he has refused treatment multiple times at this point. Like, there's evidence of his having refused treatment. So as much as he is, in fact, telling the truth here, Smerdyakov is guilty, wrapped up with the untruth, the sort of half-truth of his own guilt, it immediately falls into the delirium, immediately falls into the, the dream. Ivan has, remember, not had anything to... to has not been treated in the 24 hours since his dream. That was literally the night before. The whole business with the devil was literally hours ago. Alyosha stayed up with him, protecting him, and now he is called to the stand, and he is in no fit state for it. This is within 24 hours of his, you know, delirious encounter with the devil. Ivan is not in his right mind here. And as much as he is not in his right mind, as much as everyone can see that he is not actually guilty of his father's murder, that this is just delirium, and as much as they are throwing out the good evidence that Smerdyakov was the murderer and that here are the 3,000 rubles that he stole, with the bad, there's a devil and he's hiding under the evidence table and I am guilty of my father's murder, as much as all of this seems equally indefensible, Katerina Ivanovna takes this opportunity, apparently moved by Ivan's confession, and immediately presents more evidence, specifically the mathematical proof of the letter that Dmitri wrote two days before the murder, the one that he wrote in the tavern and where he outlined exactly how he was going to kill his father and that he was going to wait for Ivan to leave, and if Ivan left, then for sure he was going to do it. Notice this means a couple of things for all of our characters here. This big climactic moment is sort of the big moment we've been waiting for, especially for Katerina Ivanovna. Ivan hasn't changed. He is the same as he was last night. The difference here is that he has, in fact, gone forward with this confession. But it's not clear yet what that confession means. 
remember that the fundamental issue that Alyosha had brought up, the fundamental question that was still lingering in, in this novel about what Ivan's behavior ultimately boils down to was, is he going to confess out of a sense of virtue? Is he going to renounce his philosophy, his everything is permitted, his denunciation of divine conventional morality, and will he, in, or will he instead embrace his philosophy, reject that morality, and in fact lose his mind? Here we do get the confession. He does in fact come forward and say the truth, but we don't know why. And it seems to be purely a matter of his own insanity at this point. He can't control himself. He has in fact promised the devil to do this. He still has yet to decide whether what he has done by this confession is good or bad, whether it is true or false, whether he is right to do it and that it is good to tell the truth, or whether it doesn't matter and everything is permitted and there is no virtue and he should, like Raskolnikov, like Nietzsche, like Napoleon, step over conventional morality and instead just do whatever he wants to do as some kind of great man, as this sort of overman archetype. We don't know yet. We haven't received that conclusion. His confession here doesn't necessarily indicate either one. Um, he just confesses, presumably out of the same delirium that he experienced last night. So as much as I want to say, this is it, this is Ivan recognizing the truth of morality, this is him sacrificing himself on this same altar that Dmitri and Alyosha have, that this too is Ivan, like his corn of wheat falling to the ground to bear forth fruit, it's really not that clear here. Um, it's really not at all obvious what Ivan, what is going through Ivan's mind when in fact he makes this confession. The speeches that we do get from Ivan are on the one hand either totally like, totally concerned with just the facts themselves or totally fragmentary and un, sort of uninterpretable or totally delusive, totally a matter of his delusion that we really can't get at whatever is going on behind his, behind his eyes, so to speak. Um, the closest we get to actual, like, Ivan's perspective is probably where he starts condemning the public. Um, are you in your right mind inadvertently escaped from the judge? The thing is that I am precisely in my right mind, my vile mind, the same as you, in all these mugs. He suddenly turned to the public. A murdered father, and they pretend to be frightened, he growled with fierce contempt. They pull faces to each other. Liars! Everyone wants his father dead. Viper devours viper. If there were no parasite, they'd all get angry and go home in a foul temper. Circuses! Bread in circuses! And me, I'm a good one. Is there some water? Give me a drink, for Christ's sake, he suddenly clutched his head. This is probably the most telling speech, but notice how impossible to interpret it is. On the one hand, he accuses the crowd and himself for being vile. He accuses himself because he is supposedly in his right mind. He accuses the crowd because all they want is the parasite. They want bread and circuses. They want entertainment. They're not interested in being good people or seeing justice done. They just want to accuse. They want to talk. They want to gossip. And on the one hand, Ivan lumps himself in with them. My vile mind, he says, the same as you and all these mugs. But at the same time, he then turns it around. And me, I'm a good one. There's a bitter irony to this, a bitter sort of sarcasm behind his self-assessment. I'm the good one. Give me water for Christ's sake. It's difficult to see this as 
definitive either of Ivan's sort of confession, his his repentance, or alternatively, alternatively his commitment to his philosophy, because that's not what he's talking about here. In his delirium, he's just angry and has no place for that anger to go. He's angry at himself. He's angry at the people. It doesn't seem like he's made a decision at this point. He's still caught between the two horns of his dilemma. He still doesn't know whether he can, in fact, believe in God, believe in goodness, and follow with faith that goodness to its resolution, or whether he has to be a slave to his idea, a slave to his philosophy, a slave to his atheism, and therefore be out of sync, do a good thing without being able to accept it as good, or accept himself as good for doing it. To live in this sort of divided soul, where his morality, as instinctual and un, um, unimpeachable as it is, stands in direct contrast with his beliefs about what that actually means. Ivan isn't resolved here, and if he's going to be resolved, it's going to have to be later or not at all. Um, what is resolved, though, is Katerina Ivanovna. At long last, after Katerina Ivanovna sees Ivan's breakdown here, sees, at least in some respect, that he is damning himself, that he is confessing, that he is, in fact, causing himself to be scrutinized, Katerina Ivanovna immediately stands up and defends him. And unnecessarily, I might add. Ivan's testimony is utterly unusable. Everyone in the courtroom recognizes that he is down with brain fever, that he is suffering from some delusion. It's incredibly obvious that his testimony about Smerdyakov and about his own complicity in the trial is totally not going to be used. As much as it is true that Smerdyakov is the murderer, as much as it is true that he got the 3,000 rubles from the, from the, the murderer, it doesn't matter because it is mixed in with talk of devils, of accusations to the audience. Ivan isn't in any danger here, but Katerina Ivanovna reacts irrationally to Ivan's situation. She loves him, in short. As much as she does think she loves uh, Dmitri, as much as she is engaged in this complicated sort of love-slash-vengeance-slash-resentment of Dmitri for what Dmitri has put her through, and you know, as much as she has specifically made Dmitri in debt to her by these 3,000 rubles to sort of take her vengeance on him, supposedly out of love, but not out of love, here we see something true. Here we finally see Katerina Ivanovna acting out of the sort of depths of her own soul. For the entire novel, we've wondered, is she in love with Dimitri, or is she in love with Ivan, or is there something else going on? Here, Ivan suffers, and she leaps to his defense. Without thinking, without rationalizing, without trying to come up with a good reason, honestly, the best thing she could do at this point is to stay still, be quiet, don't say anything. Ivan is not in any more danger because of his confession. She doesn't need to condemn Dimitri in order to save Ivan, but she does anyway. She leaps up, presents the letter, this mathematical proof, and almost certainly seals Dimitri's fate. Dimitri apparently had written this letter two days before. Ivan had talked about it before, this mathematical proof. Katerina Ivanovna, in the fury of her emotion for, Dimitri, for Ivan, makes this decision between the two brothers. 
she would have defended Dmitri to the last, but because Ivan suffers, Katrina Ivanovna realizes she's made her choice. She loves Ivan. She will take care of Ivan. She will protect Ivan, even if it doesn't make sense. At long last, Katerina Ivanovna's soul is bared to her, or bared to us, and to her, for that matter. This is her resolution, her climax to her arc, where she has been struggling with herself this entire time, struggling to get out from under Dmitri's thumb, trying to get out from her own disgrace. Now she finally does avenge herself on Dmitri, finally cuts ties with him altogether, damns him to detention in Siberia, and in so doing frees herself up, recognizes her own passion for Ivan, and now recognizes where her heart actually lies. She loves Ivan. She cares about Ivan. Even if it doesn't make sense, her gut reaction is to sympathize with him when he in fact tries to hurt himself. So she's going to protect him. That's in her nature now. So Katerina Ivanovna, as much as this is this like fairly insignificant part of the trial, like yes, it is an important piece of evidence, it has much more to do for our purposes as the readers with Katerina Ivanovna's development. She, too, condemns herself, falls, confesses, confesses both her sin, her disgrace before the public, as well as confesses her love for Ivan in this moment. She is totally bared here, it presents herself without any secrets, without any hedging. Like, she does, in fact, confess that she was, you know, ready to have sex with Dimitri. That was what the original arrangements were going to be. Um, and then gives up the letter. She separates herself. She admits herself, confesses. And in so doing, I suspect, she fo follows the same path that we've seen Dimitri and Alyosha follow. She is, too, the corn of wheat falling to the ground in order to give forth fruit. Now she can actually live a positive life. She can stop living in this sort of divided self, this unceasing turmoil of not knowing what she actually wants. Now it's clear. She wants Ivan. And she's willing to give up her life her and her reputation for Ivan's sake. Now... As far as the trial is concerned, it's unclear how much the actual letter is going to affect things. It seems to be a better evidence against Dimitri, but certainly Dimitri was not looking great to begin with. Ivan's confession doesn't mean anything to anybody. Again, it's under the delusion, so it's not clear what it does there. The drama of this moment, for everyone, derives more from Katerina Ivanovna's nervous breakdown. Hooray, we finally get the scandal we all wanted to see much more than it does from the actual evidence that she is presenting here. Um, but for us, the reader, we should definitely be noting what this means for Katerina, that she has joined the ranks of Alyosha and Dimitri and has a chance at redemption and repentance. Um, but that brings us to the prosecutor's speech itself. And this I don't want to get too deep into, like we've already dissected a lot of this section, and I really don't want to get into the nitty-gritty of the prosecutor's speech. Um, there are three things that I really kind of want to touch on here. First off, I want to touch on the prosecutor's scope. Um, Ippoli Kirillovich is clearly interested in more than just the case of Dmitri and his father. We are talking about all Russia here. 
Um, and it is very much emphasized that by Ippoli Kirillovich that the Karamazovs are a type, and a characteristically Russian type. Um, that, you know, you know uh, the rest of the world have their hamlets, but all we have are Karamazovs. Karamazovs who embody both of the extreme depravity and the extreme, um, the extreme nobility all at the same time, where Hamlet was just sort of caught in his indecision trying to rationalize his way to a solution. Um, Dimitri did not think of what lies beyond. He did not think of the afterlife. He both is godly and is unholy at the same time. And it's worth noting that this is something that a lot of prosecutors, attorneys, writers, everybody who was thinking at this time in Russia kind of fell into. Like, Dostoevsky is very much emphasizing that Ippoli Kirillovich is getting carried away by his own oratory here. Um, there's a lot of unnecessary nonsense about the future of Russia and the state of the Russian soul and Hamlet and Chichikov and just so much of these literary references and, and Ippoli Kirillovich sort of emphasizing that this is like this culminating moment in the, the history of Russia. And it's not. Like, it's it's just a trial of this one parasite out in the boondocks of Russian provinces. But on the other hand, this is the climax of the novel. And we need to sort of recognize that Dostoevsky, as much as this is this you know, two-bit prosecutor trying to make this out to be the, the, you know, defining moment of his career and the most important moment in the history of Russian civilization, this is also a novel. And Dostoevsky is both poking fun at Ippoli Kirillovich as a character and the sort of high-flown, you know, speeches of Russian intellectuals at this point in time. He is very much emphasizing how ridiculous it all is, at the same time that he is, in fact, providing a thematic closure to his novel, which is, at the end of the day, about the Russian soul and about good and evil and about the, you know, immense battles that go beyond the scope of the Karamazov family here. Ippoli Kirillovich is wrong, and Ippoli Kirillovich is right at very much the exact same time. His speech manages to do both. It manages to be ridiculous and silly and overblown at the same time as it man manages to be apt and appropriate and suitable for the thematic closure of Dostoevsky's novel here. Um, naturally, he's not the only speech that's provided. We're definitely going to look at Fetyukovich next time and the defense attorney's speech. Um, but we should note, first and foremost, that Ippoli Kirillovich's speech is motivated as all of these speeches and as all of this witness testimony and as all of this trial has been by personality. Dostoevsky doesn't ever stop making this stuff personal. He doesn't ever let the universal requirements of, you know, the legal institution or the thematic requirements of his novel get in the way of the fact of that this person is a person delivering a speech out of their own personal eccentricities and characteristics. Ippoli Kirillovich is kind of an elitist and kind of pretentious and kind of foolishly, naively, you know, self-important, and we get a foolishly, naive, self-important speech here. Um, it, it, it both is and isn't the fate of all Russia at stake. It both is and isn't the climactic battle between good and evil. Um, we managed to touch on both. We managed to emphasize the foolishness of Ippoli Kirillovich at the same time as we emphasize how significant this actually is to the fates going on. Um, 
Ippoli Kirillovich is right, and Ippoli Kirillovich is silly, and Ippoli Kirillovich is overblown, and Ippoli Kirillovich is apt. All of this is true. So when we get talking about the history of Russia, the popular foundations of art, Fyodor Karamazov as being typical of the Russian person with his après-moi-les-déluges attitude, um, Hamlet versus Karamazov, Chichikov and the Gallop and Troika, like all of this does, in fact, have relevance to Dostoevsky at the same time as it is the foolish, overblown style that we would come to expect of a backwater prosecutor getting a little big for his britches. Um, so keep that in mind. It's not so simple as that. And as much as it is not simple on that front, as much as there is no one interpretation here, like this is the definitive thematic closure to the novel, or this isn't the th definitive thematic closure to the novel, or this is just the foolish ramblings of an overblown prosecutor, or this isn't, you know, all of that is definitely to be considered here. It is all complicated here. But we also need to recognize that its relationship to truth is equally complicated. Through his discussion of Smerdyakov, Ippoli Kirillovich manages to touch on a lot of truth and a lot of falsity. A lot of the information that we get here is wrong, and a lot of the information we get here is right. It is composed of like total fabrications, like the open door that Grigory Ippolitovich apparently like conjured in his drunken stupor, as well as just straight-up untruths extrapolations based on nothing, like the fact that Smerdyakov could not possibly have committed the murder because why would he have let Dmitri steal the money at the same time as Smerdyakov was doing it out of greed? We know that Smerdyakov gave Dmitri bad information about the, the letter or the letter and the 3,000 rubles, and therefore, even if Dmitri had murdered his father, he would not have gotten the money. That's not actually great evidence. Um, we also get actual truth here that we stumble across. Namely, we get, like, actual insights on Dimitri's behavior. Um, it's all mixed together. And it's one of, I think that is, in fact, what, what Dostoevsky is emphasizing here. Like, it would be really easy for us to say Dostoevsky's entire trial sequence, start to finish, is a condemnation of the legal system in Russia. Um, and to some degree, it is. Like, Dostoevsky is definitely criticizing the legal system in Russia, but he's not criticizing it as being totally bankrupt of all legitimacy. He's discrediting it because he recognizes that it's totally hit or miss. And that's what is being emphasized here in Ippoli Kirillovich's speech. His insights are hit or miss. They rely on the bullshit... Um, psychological evidence of Drs. Herzenstube and the Mo Moscow doctor and Dr. Barvinsky. It relies entirely on public opinion and public as assumptions about Dmitry Karamazov's psychology. It absolutely relies on bogus evidence like the open door, or and it relies totally upon mis uh, misinterpreted evidence like Smerdyakov's uh, revelation of the location of the money, which wasn't in fact true. It also relies on good evidence, truthful evidence, evidence that was in fact presented by reliable witnesses, and pretty decent common sense. Why would Dmitri snatch up the brass pestle and go to his father's window just to walk away? It doesn't make sense. But part of what Dostoevsky is emphasizing here is that people don't make sense. What 
Ippoli Kirillovich is looking for is a rational psychological explanation for Dmitri's behavior. And the only one that he can come to is one that involves the murder. But it is also riddled with questions and problems and contradictions. On the one hand, Ippoli Kirillovich flat out denies the existence of the amulet. Couldn't possibly happen, he says. Dmitry Kir er, Karamazov has the sort of character where he would inevitably tear it open and be like, eh, I'll just take 100 rubles out and spend it on something. And, you know, I'll still have 1,400 rubles to give to Katerina Ivanovna. And then he'll take a little more from it. Well, if, what's 1,400? What, it could just as easily be 1,200 or 800 or 500 or 300 or 100 or why even 100? Let's just get rid of it all. Ippoli Kirillovich makes sense here. The argument he presents is cogent. But at the same time, a little while later, he stresses that Dmitri somehow hid away from himself 1,500 rubles during his spree in Makroya with Grushenka, and apparently just totally had the self-restraint to do this in the moment, despite the fact that the amulet was implausible. Like, Billy Kirillovich even admits to himself that it is kind of self-contradictory, but on the one hand, he thinks it's impossible, and on the other hand, he handy thinks it's totally possible. It's just in a different moment. So it doesn't make sense. Like, it doesn't actually hold together. There's some good points and there's some bad points. There are some good spots and some strong arguments, and there are some bad spots and some weak arguments. There's lies and there's untruths and there's misinterpretations and there's rash like flimsy rationalizations. And all of this makes up the prosecutor's view of what Dmitry Karamazov did and how the courtroom is going to understand Dmitry Karamazov's behavior that night. It's all mixed in together. And that doesn't mean that the legal system is broken. What it means is that the legal system is seriously flawed, that it is all subject to human behavior, human nature, human fallibility. Both the avarice and greed of people like Rakitin and Trifon Borisovich, and also the total misjudgment of people like Herzenstube and Dr. Vorvinsky and Ippoli Kirillovich himself. It relies on people being rational in a way that just doesn't happen, as evidenced by Dmitri's own personal behavior throughout these weeks and months. And it relies on an expectation that everything is going to yield some kind of truth, and that people are going to behave rationally on the juror's stand, in the witness box, which is clearly not the case, because again, all of these effects seem to be happening independently of the reliability of the evidence that these witnesses are presenting. Dostoevsky is emphasizing that at every single level, at every tier of this supposedly rational institution, there is doubt, and there is irrationality, and there is incred incredibility creeping in and around the corners. Lies and untruths and bad interpretations and misinterpretations and poor rationalizations and just flat-out irrationality at every level. The court system isn't broken. It is the best you can do with people. Now, I'm not sure if Dostoevsky does have design on the court here. Like, it seems that Dostoevsky, in many of his other writings, certainly does have suspicions about the court system. But I honestly don't think he has a strong opinion one way or the other as to whether this is an attack or whether this is, in fact, a defense. This is just reality to Dostoevsky. This is what a courtroom looks like. This is what a trial looks like. And yeah, it's full of errors. It's totally botched on multiple occasions. 
but that doesn't necessarily mean that he's condemning it. Like, it's foolish for sure. It's a circus, like I said, but it's not like we get asides from Dostoevsky talking about how broken the whole system was or how foolish it all was. Not here, anyway. Maybe in the next couple of chapters we'll see something along those lines, but for now we certainly don't have a decisive, polemical rejection of the legal system in Russia at the time. It's messed up, for sure. Dostoevsky is very quick to point that out, but he's not presenting an alternative. He's not giving any characters an ironic twist and a glint in the eye when they say, wouldn't it be better if we did X, Y, Z? Or perhaps, you know, we should go back to the old old ecclesiastical court system. Or perhaps the Zemstvo is more than capable of handling these sorts of situations. You know, there isn't an alternative here. There is just an examination of what the Russian court system is actually like. And yeah, it's a mess. And in many of the ways that it's a mess, we should also be interrogating our own court system. We're certainly not immune. Like, if your reaction to this chapter was, wow, we do it so much better than they do, that's probably not the takeaway here. Dostoevsky is emphasizing the humanity underlying human institutions. That we cannot have a system without humanity getting in the way. Personal preference, personal bias, misinterpretation, irrationality, human irrationality. That's part of what makes us who we are, and all of our stuff is going to be infected by that. It's all going to be imperfect. And that's okay, as far as Dostoevsky is concerned. Notice that for many of these characters, their humanity is what is best about them. It is the rationality, the ideas, the philosophy of thinkers like Ivan Karamazov, or even of Smerdyakov for that matter, that very much interfere with their humanity and end up covering up the best parts of who they are. Smerdyakov, if he felt guilt, that guilt was out of sync with his philosophy. And for Ivan, that's clearly what's happening to him. The system of the courts, as much as it is an aid to civilization as much as it is an important stage of development in Russia, it is also important that it emphasizes and sort of draws out the natural goodness of peasants, of noble people, of witnesses, of suspects, of expert testimony, of judges and prosecutors and defenders alike. The humanity is what is really important here for Dostoevsky. The humanity, the natural goodness of all of these people is what's going to make the outcome of a trial good or bad. The trial itself, the legal proceedings here, are largely indifferent to truth and falsity, good and evil. And that makes it of indifferent value to us. Unimportant in the grand sort of like, normative valuation that Dostoevsky is trying to do here. The court system is kind of a tangent in the whole business of good versus evil. It's irrelevant to both. It is something where evil can triumph very easily, but where good can equally triumph. Where the best intentions of prosecutors and jurors and witnesses and suspects and judges and public, you know, public like watchers, all of them just sort of coincide. It's just a crossroads of, again, human agency, human character, people with different ideas bumping into each other, crashing against each other. The results are not reliable. 
they're human. Everything about this is human. Uh, the evidence is corrupted slash propped up by humanity. The ultimate verdicts will be decided not by pure rational evidences, but by human biases, right or wrong, correct or incorrect. The fact that people are impressed by Dimitri's composure and judgment, or the fact that they're not, that they're offended by his behavior. On some level, that's more reliable than all those evidences. And on some level, that's totally unreliable and totally a matter of subjective perspective. Dostoevsky is seeing all this, reporting it to us. But the last thing I want to touch on here is what the, what the prosecutor ultimately closes with and how it is ultimately interpreted. The big closing image here, the galloping troika, is an image that the prosecutor draws from Gogol's Dead Souls, a book that is especially important to Dostoevsky, especially important to Russians at the time. Um, the image of the galloping troika is the very last one in Gogol's Dead Souls. I actually have my copy of Peter and Balakonsky here, and we're actually going to read the last paragraph of the book. In part because Dead Souls is awesome, like I would actually love to do a read through of Dead Souls at some point. It's like quick and wonderful and hilarious. Um, and again, really formative for Dostoevsky especially. We've seen multiple references to Chichikov and the characters of Dead Souls throughout the Brothers Karamazov. But here we see the final image, the galloping troika. So Gogol writes, and this is page 253 of the, the, um, the book, literally the last page of Dead Souls. Chichikov has, you know, has tried to concoct his scheme, managed to slip away, and is now riding this troika out of town and out of the lives of all the other characters. Gogol writes, And you, Rus, are you not also like a brisk, unbeatable troika racing on? The road smokes under you, bridges rumble, everything falls back and is left behind. Dumbstruck by the divine wonder, the contemplator stops. Was it a bolt of lightning thrown down from heaven? What is the meaning of this horrific movement, and what unknown force is hidden in these steeds unknown to the world? Ah, steeds, steeds, what steeds? Are there whirlwinds in your manes? Is a keen ear burning in your every nerve? Hearing the familiar song from above, all in one accord you strain your bronze chests and hooves barely touching the ground, turn into straight lines flying through the air, and all inspired by God, it rushes on. Roos, where are you racing to? Give answer. She gives no answer. Wondrously, the harness belt dissolves in ringing, the air rumbles, shattered to pieces, and turns to wind. Everything on earth flies by and, looking askance, other nations and states step aside to make way. Ippoli Kirillovich emphasizes that line uh, of other states and nations stepping aside to make way. This is a moment of great pride in Russia for him. It's a patriotic image, um, and he adopts it for patriotic reasons. But notice, as much as he is emphasizing that, like, this is the great Russian spirit, this is the great Russian soul, we will, in fact, condemn Dmitry Karamazov, prove our justice, and demonstrate to the world that we are a civilized nation, that's not what the image necessarily suggests. The image is of a headlong Russia, just blasting forward without any control, moved by God itself in the image here and seemingly illogical, moving beyond all rationality, just flying forward at this sort of unstoppable pace. 
And I think to some degree that's what Dostoevsky is emphasizing, this whole business of the trial here. How it doesn't matter if it's rational or irrational, good or bad. It is just the act of Russia just plowing forward like the galloping troika, totally heedless, totally indifferent to rationality, to good sense, just flying along like a bat out of hell because that's what it does, because that's the Russian soul in a nutshell. As much as, again, this trial is a farce on so many levels, for Dostoevsky, again, the emphasis here is that it is Russia doing what Russia does, plowing forward heedless into its own dreams of civilization, flying with the fury of its own soul, personified in characters like Dmitri and Ivan and Fyodor and Alyosha, whose passions move them, who are pushed to both the depths of depravity and the heights of nobility in the same moment as Ippoli Kirillovich catches onto and acknowledges. Dostoevsky is showing us a Russia that is out of control, like that galloping troika. And there is both nobility in that total recklessness and also, you know, danger, a terrible danger, horrible mistakes are going to be made here. The trial is proceeding like that troika, just totally recklessly with mad scandal and huge confessions and characters just flying off the handle at a moment's notice. All of this propriety is just a mask for all of the madness going on underneath. But notice, too, the way that this chapter actually concludes, not with the image, but with the responses. All of the various people in the crowd commenting on Ippoli Kirillovich and his, his big speech here. A serious speech, a gentleman in one group observed, frowning. Too wrapped up in psychology, another voice was heard. Yes, but all true, irrefutably true. Yes, he's a master of it. Summed it all up. Us too. He summed us up too. At the start of the speech, remember that we're all the same as Fyodor Pavlovich? But, and at the end too, but that was all rubbish. There were some vague spots. Got a bit carried away. Unjust. Unjust, sir. No, but anyway, it was clever. The man waited for a long time, and finally he said it. Heh <laughs> heh. Notice, too, by the end of this, they're actually accusing Ippoli Kirillovich himself. Um, <clears throat> too much rhetoric, too many long phrases, and browbeating. Did you notice how he kept browbeating us? Remember the Troika? They have their hamlets, but so far we have only Karamazovs. That was clever. Courting liberalism. Afraid. He's also afraid of the defense attorney. Like, notice they're looking at all of these different dimensions of the case simultaneously. Again, irrationally. Looking at not just the speech, but the context of the speech. Ippoli Kirillovich personally, what was Fetyukovich's response? Was it true? Was it not true? Is it Russia? Is it not Russia? Dostoevsky is inviting us to look at this not as this, you know, good or bad thing, as this right or wrong institution, as a successfully executed trial or a poorly executed trial, as circus or seriousness. He's inviting to see it all inviting us to look at it the way that these peasants are looking at it, the way that these onlookers are looking at it, as this chaos of different voices and opinions and perspectives all just smashing into each other. The galloping troika, the recklessness of the Russian soul, is what's both informing the progress, this trial itself, and the individual perspectives. It is both the soul of Dmitri, the potential murderer. It is the soul of Smerdyakov, the actual murderer. It is the soul of Ippoli Kirillovich trying to, you know, desperately make his name 
like say his word in the world, and it's the voice of Ivan Karamazov in his delirium trying to reconcile his philosophy and his morality. It's Alyosha, the son of, or the, the like, successor of, uh, of Father Zosima, and it is Rakuten with his pure profiteering spirit. All of this is how we get this trial. And in such a way, it is a fitting climax to all that has gone before. It embodies all of that chaos, all of that recklessness, all of that Karamazovian spirit that Ippoli Kirillovich is so keen to talk about. It is very, very Russian. And it is very much about Russia. The soul of Russia, fragmented as it is, but still driven by this underlying fire that cannot be controlled, cannot be stopped. The Troika, like a bolt of lightning here. It's about that passion. That specifically Karamazovian passion is a specifically Russian passion. We don't have Hamlet. We have Karamazovs, Dostoevsky would write here. And this battle of good and evil, again, to some degree, much as Dostoevsky has given us a solution, it is indifferent to the progress of Russia. On the one hand, he is showing us what it means to be a hero. Alyosha is, to some degree, his most successful hero to date, much as he has tried to write them before. But Russia, Russia proceeds with its Alyoshas and its Rakutins, with its Father Zosimas and its Fyodor Karamazovs. We are all on this ride together, Fyodor uh, Dostoevsky is telling us. We are all just rushing madly towards the conclusion. Good, bad, or indifferent. And yeah, you better believe people like Snegirov, people like Fyodor Pavlovich, are going to get run over in this process. People are going to be hurt, damaged. Lives will be lost. But you can't very well stop it. <laughs> it's rushing forward too fast. Dostoevsky is not counseling, slowing down, taking things quietly. No. He's just observing the state of things. This is what Russia is like here in the 19th century. We are all rushing this fast into the future, heedlessly, recklessly, madly. And there is both joy and trauma in it, terror and excitement. And there is tragedy, just as there is comedy in it. It is all happening. And this novel has very much been quick to point out all of these things. It is huge and sprawling and messy for this very reason. Because you can't talk about people without it getting big and messy and sprawling and incomprehensible in some ways. Humans are self-contradictory. They don't make sense. Their irrationality and their rationality stand side by side. Dostoevsky is a great writer to appreciate that, and an even greater writer for being able to depict it in its own right. But this is all anticipating, because we haven't come to the end yet. Next time we finish off the farce of a trial, our... what is the name of this section? Oh my gosh, I've somehow forgotten entirely. A Judicial Error. We will finish off this book 12, A Judicial Error, we will read the epilogue and we will reach our conclusions. If there is in fact anything that we can successfully say about this novel, we'll have said it then. So I look forward to talking about that big finale and all of the conclusions and finishing off our discussion with you very soon.
Hey, thanks for listening. I look forward to having some new content out next week for you. And in the meantime, I highly recommend that you check out my other projects on professorkozlowski.wordpress.com, which is the sort of center for all of the things I'm doing online these days. Um, and please, if you like this, share it, subscribe to it, send it out, get everybody to know that I'm making lectures and talking about something that you're interested in. Um, the more listeners I have, the more people I have following me, the better chance there is that I'll be able to continue doing this. And if you can, please consider contributing to my Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Professor Kozlowski. Um, I've already got a few patrons. We are up and running. Um, but the more money I'm making through this project, the more I can devote my time and energy to my projects online, and the less I have to worry about things like rent and feeding myself. Um, so please, keep, keep listening, keep sharing, keep subscribing. And as much as you can, keep contributing. Uh, I'll see you soon.